Hey, everybody, tour announcement. It's just me, Chuck. Uh, Josh isn't here for this one, and we had to get it out the door. So apologies for 50% of stuff you should know. But we have added two dates to uh, the 2018 tour, and there may be another couple to come. You never know. But everybody, we asked Salt Lake Cityans and Utahns, should we come there? And boy, we heard from you. So we're coming. It's that easy. Tuesday, October 23rd, we are coming to Salt Lake City for an evening with Stuff You Should Know at the Grand Theater. And we are super excited. I'll tell you what, you guys really came through on the emails and social meds and let us know that uh, we would see some love if we came to Salt Lake City, a, uh, a city we've talked about often in the past. So we are a coming. Tuesday, October 23rd, and we decided, hey, we're going to be out there. Uh, we might as well add another city that we've never been to. So it is your lucky day, Phoenix, Arizona. And dare I say Tucson and, and the greater Phoenix area, drive over to Phoenix and come see us on Wednesday, October 24th at the Van Buren. And this is also an evening with stuff you should know. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds a little more regal than normal. So uh, come see us October 23rd and 24th, at Salt Lake City in Phoenix. Uh, you know what? I don't even know if tickets are on sale. I believe by the time this announcement goes up, tickets will be on sale and you can go to the Van Buren website or to the Grand Theater website to get your ticket links. I will try and have them up very soon on SYSKLive.com. But uh, don't know if I'll get to that today. But look for it soon, and we can't wait to see you guys. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's guest producer Tristan over there. So it's stuff you should know. I don't know how these are going to release, but as you've noticed, Tristan weirdly grew out his mustache <laughs> in the last hour again. He's, he's quick. He is very fast. He can make it go in and out, in and out. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. What is that? It's in, like he's growing his mustache and it's sucking it back in. Oh, okay. Growing it out, sucking it back in. No, you know, I... like uh, reverse Play-Doh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you remember that Play-Doh set with the... Like the, the little meat grinder? No, there was one where like you could grow a mustache on a dude, if oh, I remember correctly. I, I think I remember that. Yeah. But yeah. imagine if you could reverse it too. It was called the, the, the Play-Doh nightmare set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that your nightmare? Growing a, a Play-Doh mustache? Waking up like that? Yeah, I've, I've had that dream about once a week for about 35 years. Like all the rest of you is Chuck, but just your mustache is Wallace and Gromit. Yeah. Dude, uh, yesterday I, uh, there was a, a bad smell. Emily and I were having a glass of wine at a wine bar. And there was a bad smell nearby. I think it was a dumpster or something. Mm -hmm. And they were growing fresh herbs at this wine bar. And I rubbed a rosemary bush and then swiped it all over my mustache, mm -hmm. uh, and Emily's mind was blown. She was oh, just yeah? like, oh, my God. Like, I can't believe, like, that's an actual use for facial hair. Yeah, I guess it just is. Just to hold in that smell. I was like, well, you can wipe it on your upper lip. It's probably the same thing. Sure. Maybe the hair retains more uh, uh, Essential oils. I don't know. Maybe. Which essential oils, man, people are clamoring for that episode. Yeah, we should do that. We will eventually. It's been a big part of my life for 10 or 12 years now. 
Essential oils. We'll talk about it someday, but not today. No, no. Because Chuck's going to stumble through a philosophy podcast. It's a, yeah, I guess it is philosophy. It's the philosophy of knowledge. Epistemology is another way to put it. But specifically, Chuck, we're talking today about a little ditty you may have heard of before called Occam's Razor. Called the Gambler. Have you... <laughs> Have you ever, you'd heard of Occam's Razor before, right? Well, so much so that I thought for sure we had covered this, but um, I realized that we just talked about it quite a bit in the uh, Scientific Method episode. I'm not at all surprised because a lot of people say that the basis of science, which is how humans approach um, nature Mm -hmm. and our universe and us and everything scientifically, the basis of that is Occam's Razor. And if if Occam's razor sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, you've probably heard it as something like, um, given two possible outcomes or explanations or whatever, the simplest version is probably the right one. Yeah, it's a pretty, even that in its simplicity is is beautiful. The mere statement itself is an example of its simplicity and how wonderful it can be just to think like, yeah, you know what? Let's cut through all the gobbledygook. I think the easiest way to explain this, whether it's a uh, a, uh, a a what do you call the orb in a photo? It's An just, orb. Yeah, it's not it's not your great grandfather coming to visit you on a different plane. It's really just a an error with your photograph. Or it's a fl- it's the flash. Um, yeah, reflecting off a, a like water vapor in the air. Or Kennedy probably acted alone. Kennedy. He shot himself (laughs) from afar. Yeah, I clearly meant to say Oswald acted alone because that is the simplest explanation, not this very convoluted, uh, deep um, plot that goes that 100 people were involved in to assassinate Kennedy. So we'll talk about all that because that's a teaser. What you're doing right now is has become pretty standard. You're using Occam's razor to disprove other people's points. Yeah. There's this is a total and complete misuse of Occam's razor. It's not the original intention. The original intention had nothing to do with saying that's wrong. It is just a heuristic device, a guide, a rule of thumb that tells you that because things tend to be more simple in the universe, if, you, if, if you're doing something, don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't add more to it than is needed to get the job done. Right. And there's actually a couple of ways to put this, and both of them get attributed to William of Ockham, who we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, Billy Ockham. But one is called, he sounds like a baseball manager. Yeah. But one is called the principle of plurality. Yeah. Harder to say fast than you would think. It is. And that is translated from the Latin, plurality should not be posited without necessity. And the other is the principle of parsimony, which is it is pointless to do with more what is done with less. From what I understand, they are one and the same. Oh, really? I could not find anyone who could explain the difference. And I see them interchangeably, not just like on some dude's blog, but on like, you know, the 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 Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy or the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Like, they, they, they don't seem to be different. Hmm. Well, it, parsimony, it seems different to me because that specifically is like, 
not using resources, not spending money mm-hmm. uh, if you don't have to. And that seems different than plurality. Okay, me. well then, then let's explore it. So plurality, adding to something, doubling something maybe, just making it more than just the singular. He's saying plurality should not be positive without necessity, right? So I guess what he's saying then, if they are different, then if you're if you're guessing at something, if you're trying to explain something, mm-hmm. don't make it harder than it is. Don't make it bigger than is absolutely necessary to explain it. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, and this is a really big point that we'll see in a minute, William of Ockham really was saying, don't, don't add on to something beyond what you know to be true and correct, which a lot of people over time, and I think he actually maybe explicitly was an empiricist, have said William of Ockham was an empiricist. He was saying that that you need to experience things through your senses to know that they are true. Yes, empirical That's- evidence, if I can look at it or smell it or taste it mm-hmm. or feel it. What's the fifth one? Uh, tickle it. Tickle it, and then the sixth one, of course, we know means Bruce Willis is really dead. See, see the ghost of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, if there's no empirical evidence, if you cannot experience it with one of your senses, then um, it's it's poo-pooed. So, so it is. So, and those two things, like you really, the, especially modern science, especially science these days, you put them together. It's uh, given two things, go with the simpler explanation, and you don't don't believe anything that you can't sense one way or another through your senses empirically right mm-hmm. you put those together you have the basis for modern science and so the idea that 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 things that are simpler are better or the idea that the universe is simpler like when you start to think about it it's all over the place mm-hmm. right like the uh, the idea that the universe is based on simpler being better is found everywhere, right? So, like, there's things that things have fewer parts, mm-hmm. things that um, require less energy, the encapsulation of larger ideas into smaller amounts of words or theories or whatever. All these things are very much prized by humanity. So, it just kind of makes sense that Occam's razor is a sensible thing and that you could actually use it to uncover the mysteries of the universe. Yeah. But again, that's not really necessarily the case, to tell you the truth. No, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of, uh, and and this stuff is kind of fun, just a lot of back and forth uh, on Occam's razor throughout this whole thing. Because right. there is no answer, and that's kind of part of the whole jam of Occam's razor, is there is no right or wrong here. Right. You know? What's no, weird is— Not right. <laughs> a lot of people point to it, though, that it's, oh, this is right. I just proved you wrong, Occam's yeah. razor. And that's just not true. Oh, man. All right. Should we take a break early? Okay. Yeah. I think we should take a break now because I need to get my head wrapped around this. And we'll come back, get in the Wayback Machine, and visit Billy Ockham. Okay. So now Billy Ockham sounds like a um, 1980s recording star. Oh, sure. Like Billy Ocean. Yeah. <laughs> get off so, of my razor and get into my car. Was this big hit? <laughs> so the we should say the razor too. It's a philosophical term. It's a term of philosophy. It, the, the razor you use to 
scrape away unnecessary stuff. So it's Occam's razor. So let's go back and meet Billy Occam, shall we? Yeah, and you wrote this, by the way, mm-hmm. back in your in your article writing days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you point out very astutely that this is from a time uh, in our history of the world where you might not have had a surname. You may have been William of Ockham, which is the case here, which is in England. Yep. And he lived um, between about 1285 and 1349. And he was a philosophical dude and a Franciscan monk. And he very much, like you point out, took his vow of poverty very seriously and lived um, a very meager, uh, humble life. Yeah, he did. He also expected the church to take the same vow of poverty. And he actually butted heads with the church quite a bit, so much so that he ended up getting excommunicated, as we'll see. But he, um, he was the real deal as far as like a true believer went. The weird thing about William of Ockham was that he was also a genuinely independent thinker Mm -hmm. and a rationalist, which at the time, rationalism and the church did not go hand in hand. They were, there was really not much rationalism. So for an idea, the idea for this, this upstart Franciscan monk to start questioning the ideas of the church, and not only that, but how the, 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 leaders of the church conducted themselves and how much money they surrounded themselves with and how much power they had politically, this is, it was a big deal, right? Yeah, and he is not, he did not invent this line of thought um, as much as he's probably attributed to this to people that uh, just know him from like a Jeopardy board. He, uh, this is already a line of thought well-established by this time uh, in the medieval times. And he was just, he kind of boiled it down to, those two sentences that you were talking about. So anyone could understand it and you could put it on a bumper sticker and a t-shirt and sell it. Right. So it was Aristotle who was the guy who came up with this idea first that that simplicity equals perfection and perfection equals simplicity. He said, the more perfect a nature is, the fewer means it requires for its operation. Right? I love that. So that makes sense. That speaks to me. But then over time in between Aristotle and William, it kind of got expanded. So let me give you an example of that same thought from Robert Grosteste, who was an early scientist, also a theologian, I believe, too. Here is his, his version of it. That is better and more valuable, which requires fewer other circumstances being equal. For if one thing were demonstrated from many and another thing from fewer equally known premises, clearly that is better, which is from fewer, because it makes us know quickly, just as a universal demonstration is better than particular because it produces knowledge from fewer premises. Is that the end? Similarly, in natural science, (laughs) in moral science, and in metaphysics, the best is that which needs no premises, and that better, that which needs the fewer other circumstances being equal. Boy, the ironies there are rich. Right. So within less than 100 years, William of Ockham comes along, and he's just like, plurality should not be positive without necessity, Robert. Yeah. And Robert was like, well, yeah, I guess that's one way you could say it. So so I want to say something, though, um, before we keep going, Chuck. I actually found a correction of my own article that I missed before. What's that? It turns out that they think now that another... Um, theologian slash scientist from uh, William of Ockham's era 
named John Dunn Scotus was the one who really encapsulated this, this principle of plurality and principle of parsimony, and that it was a guy from the 19th century, William Rowan Hamilton, a British mathematician, that he was the one who misattributed it to William of Ockham. So is William of Ockham just a, a, a know-nothing? No. No, his writings definitely included this stuff, and he never took credit for this. Okay. But they think that he, that it was actually um, John's Dunscottus who encaps who encapsulated it, the way that we tend to think of it now. So he sold all the Ockham. bumper stickers. But right, but William of Ockham thought this way, and he was a radical thinker and a rationalist, as we'll see. Right, and like you kind of teased out earlier, he did butt heads with the church over this. Uh, he wrote a lot about it, and uh, the church was not into it. And Pope John the what is that twenty second. Um, he, they they kind of squared off on this, and of course the Pope wins all battles, uh, at least back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was excommunicated, and several of his uh, his monk brothers, and I, I take that to mean not real brothers, right? Right. Were excommunicated in 1328. He went to Munich seeking refuge. He was protected there by Emperor Louis the Fourth, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Ultimately, he won out because he started writing papers about Pope John the Twenty Second, saying he's a heretic, and people ultimately believed him. Right. He he definitely made some pretty convincing points, and he also again, he, like if you're saying I took a vow of poverty, the church really should too, and the church isn't poverty stricken, and you are, that gives you a little more credibility from the outside as well. Sure. So there there's some reasons why William of Ockham is. This theologian, a devout Franciscan monk, is looked upon as one of the fathers of Western um, science, Mm -hmm. like the foundation of Western science, right? Or science in general. Um, And the reason why is he argued against the prevailing ideas at the time, which is called medieval synthesis. And this is very much championed by uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's a famous theologian. I believe he was a saint. And one of the reasons he, he was canonized was because of this, thinking about this. But the whole medieval synthesis thing was that God was first and foremost everything, right? You were, you were a, a member of the church it, just as much as you were a member of your country, a citizen of your country. Right. Um, all human knowledge came from God. And Thomas Aquinas, he was, it wasn't just like the end. Thomas Aquinas used philosophy to prove that sentiment, that all human knowledge came from God, and here is how. And basically, it, it took the idea of cause and effect and said that you can trace every effect back to a cause, back to another effect, back to another cause. But ultimately, you're going to f- end up on God. And that all of our conceptions of everything arose from God's conception and that God willed that we understand things this way, which means that this is the perfect way to understand it, which means it's right, right? So that is not what William Wacom thought. He was, again, a rationalist who said, um, no, we tend to think things are things because that is that arises in the human mind from cognition, not from God. And this dude was not a heretic. He believed that you didn't apply rationalism to God, that God required faith. Sure. And and rationalism stood on its own. It was a different thing. And you couldn't know God through your senses. God was elsewhere. Leave God out of this. And the fact that he was able to really successfully lay like a philosophical groundwork for this, a rational groundwork for it. It's one thing today to be like, I'm a secular humanist. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm rational. 
forget the church. That's today. This is at a time when this guy is saying this, and the church has the power to burn you at the stake. Like he was, he was a, a stand-up rational thinker, right? Which kind of makes him a hero of rationality today. But don't, and this is another perfect example of how Occam's razor gets confused. Occam himself gets confused too. He's a hero of science, but he was also one of the more devout human beings walking the, the earth at the time and was a monk for basically his whole life. And also had a metal band called Medieval Synthesis. Oh, that is a good name, isn't it? So he was, he was just a conundrum. Yeah, he was a conundrum for sure. And again, he got excommunicated. He had to escape by horse. Stolen horse. Ooh. I mean, he was not very monk-like. No, but, all right, so we were talking earlier about empirical evidence um, and how that kind of fits in here and the fact that if you can't, you know, like, you you know the sky is blue because you look up and you see it's blue. You, you know a uh, bird makes a whistle because you can hear the bird make a whistle. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's very easy to sort of use that um, and say, sure, but if you don't, if you can't see it or hear it empirically or any of the senses experience it, uh, it's very easy to poo-poo. And you give a great example here um, with uh, Lorenz and Einstein mm-hmm. and kind of which one would win out. So both of these guys, both physicists, um, Einstein obviously more popular, we, we'll see for a very important reason. They both had the conclusion mathematically that with the space-time continuum, the closer we get to moving at the speed of light, the more we slow down, which is hard to wrap your head around. So Lorenz comes out and says, explains it away because of changes that take place in the ether, which he might as well have said, a bit of magic happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Einstein didn't, and so the one we talk about today is Einstein and not Lorenz. That explanation of Einstein was more rooted in science, and he didn't say something wacky like the ether, which is something empirically you can't see or smell or taste. Right. So Einstein, you know, he he won that great battle. <laughs> yeah, he very famously said, he goes, I don't know what's what, but I know it ain't got nothing to do with no ether. <laughs> <laughs> and one day my brain's going to end up in a jar in some guy's garage in New Jersey. Right, and everybody will love that picture of me with my tongue sticking out. And Walter Matthau will play me in a romantic comedy. So, Lawrence violated that principle of plurality, right? He added something to this that required an additional, basically, like a leap of faith. There was no empirical evidence that there was such a thing as the ether. And he said, did I say ether? And I didn't mean ether, and everyone went, no, no, no. (laughs) It's too late, (laughs) Lawrence. We heard you, buddy. And he's still, I mean, he's a respected, he's a respected physicist still. Oh, yeah, it's not sure. like he was some crackpot or anything like that. Because if you put his equations and Einstein's equations side by side, they came to the same conclusions. It was just explaining how Lorentz seems to have misstepped, right? Right. But he was obviously at least as brilliant as Einstein when it comes to that. He's just a little nuts, apparently. Right. So, so he violates the principle of plurality, and now we understand relativity rather than Lorentz's manic ravings. Yeah, and I don't believe we mentioned there is a word for that. If you can't prove it empirically, it doesn't exist. It's called positivism. Yes. Uh, positivism isn't about having a good attitude. Right. And so this is, and this also happened during Einstein's working days too. There was a guy named Ernest Mach, and Ernest Mach was so... Ernst. Ernst Mach, thank you. Yeah, no E. That's, that's way better than Ernest. Or just too. one E, yeah. Ernst Mach. Um, he was so nuts on 
empiricism. He was a he was an early, I think he was a physicist, if not a mathematician, one of the two. And he he basically said, like, molecules don't exist. All this whole bubble over molecules and atoms and all this stuff, you're all crazy. We can't see them, they don't exist. So there's a there's this kind of ironic twist that came from Einstein's working career where he actually um he beat Lorenz, his rival, to this theory mm-hmm. through this through Occam's razor. But he also disproved this idea of um, that Ernst Mach, this thing about only believing what you can sense with your your senses, this kind of other part of Occam's razor, in a subsequent paper that came a few years later that showed that molecules do exist. So the idea that that Occam's razor can be used both ways is something that just keeps coming up again and again and again. And we'll, we'll talk about how after a break. How about that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Chuck. So, who who uses Occam's razor? Obviously, um, everyone who was throwing money down on the cockfight between Lorentz and Einstein were using Occam's razor. They all went with Einstein's because his was the simplest, right? Yeah. Who else uses it? Well, I mean, you have a great section in this uh, article about skeptics, uh, and I know over the years of this show, over the past ten years, we've had a lot of um, minor scraps. The skeptic community? <laughs> that, I'd say pretty minor. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, we have our skeptical side for sure, but there, you know, when it comes to skepticism and skeptics, there's a, it's, it's sort of on a, on a sliding scale. There's a range mm-hmm. of how you might feel about certain things. And you very astutely, I think, point out that if you are a true skeptic, uh, then you will not use Occam's razor like I did earlier as a tool to disprove something. Right. Uh, that you will only use it as a tool to consider different explanations. And that's, there's a big difference there. There is. So like, like that whole idea of seeing a ghost on film, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's this example where somebody could say, um, so you just explained something about light and refracting and something with the film and um, there was moisture in the air. What it's what, isn't it just simpler to say no? That was a ghost. Right, exactly. And in that case, um, if you're a skeptic, you would you would um, you you pull a little tuft of your hair out. Uh-huh. Maybe um, just start scraping at your cheeks until you bleed. Uh, ideally, what you would say is, um, I get what you're saying, but you're bringing something into this that we don't know exists. Like we do know light exists. We do know it right. refracts off of uh, vapor. We do know how this can be captured on film. So yes, that sounds very complicated, um, but the, the the ghosts don't exist as far as we know. We can't sense them empirically. But I would keep my mind open to the idea that right. ghosts could conceivably exist. The fact that I just showed that this is refle- the reflection of light off of water vapor in this graveyard does not mean that your hypothesis about ghosts existing is wrong. It just means in that's what's case, in this picture. Right. That's, that's a true skeptic. Right, because because things happen and they and later on, the more fantastical 
explanation could be true and has been true. Uh, and you point out very, uh, very plainly here that there's a couple of problems with this. And to me, this kind of says it all, is that it's subjective. Like the whole notion of determining is this is the most simple explanation is completely subjective mm-hmm. because the ghost explanation, one person might say, no, the ghost explanation is clearly the simplest because mm-hmm. I can just say one word, ghost. See there? Uh, and then you could fire right back. Well, no, I can fire back two words, um, photographic mishap. <laughs> right. Or maybe just mishap. Yeah. If they want to, like, keep it completely equal. And that's the most simple. So it's completely subjective as to which one or, or anything that is the most simple. Right, exactly. And then again, the the idea that you can use Occam's razor to disprove something just by showing that that it's not the simplest explanation, that doesn't that's not correct. That's not right. And so scientists will use Occam's razor in all sorts of different disciplines. Um, like, for example, if you're making an artificial neural network, right, like a, mach- a learning machine, mm-hmm. you um, you might use decision trees and you will use some sort of simple decision tree over a more complicated one that can get the same job done. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily the right one, but there, there are demonstrably good reasons for picking a simpler one over. It's less likely to break. It takes less time. It takes less energy to come to the computations. There are things that are valuable about it, but it doesn't mean that the other one is just wrong. And again, when you're using Occam's razor, say if you're making a neural network or you're pouring through a data set or something like that, or you're trying to interpret a a big data set, you're, you're making, again, like you were saying, not just a subjective judgment about what's simpler, but that's all there is to it. You're making a subjective judgment about what's simpler, not what's right. It's not saying what's right. And this is a recurring theme that you just have to know because there's so many people out there that use Occam's razor to disprove other people's ideas. And that's just not at all what it was originally intended for. It's just a complete perversion of it. And it's just wrong. And that's not how science works. So if you see somebody out there doing this, um, thump them in the forehead. (laughs) Yeah. And boy, then when you get into theology, it gets really interesting Mm -hmm. because this is sort of a a prime example of the simplest explanation from a, a, a believer's point of view is very easy to say, no, the Big Bang is incredibly complex and complicated. And it's pretty clear that the easiest explanation here and the simplest thing is God created life in seven days. Right. But that's also discounting the process that it took God to create earth, if that's what you believe, and just kind of bundle it up in a tidy package, say God created life, the Big Bang is super complicated, so and very coincidental. Um, if you really look at it. So this is the simplest uh, explanation. Occam's razor proves that God exists. Right. And so that's been used time and time again by by um, creationists, right? Mm-hmm. Or people who believe in ghosts or people who um, counter empiricism in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you can, you can find atheists who use Occam's razor to show that God does not exist. Right. Because their point is if the universe tends towards simplicity and God is perfect and simplicity is perfection, then if God existed, the universe would be a lot more simpler. There, there wouldn't be this big bang thing that we have that mm-hmm. happened. It would, you, you would be right, creationists, and the fact that you're wrong uh, means that 
means that there is no God, which is just like my head's starting to spin a little bit with this. But it's a good example of how you can use Occam's razor. Both sides can use Occam's razor to disprove the other person's point, which again shows how it's not meant to be used that way. Well, yeah, and then you point out too, and talk about a head spinner, like something like photosynthesis is a pretty complex mechanism in nature. Um, But, I mean, who's to say that that isn't the simplest way uh, to achieve food production in a plant. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is the simplest. Yeah, we have no way of knowing that there is a simpler model of the universe or photosynthesis or of a shark or anything like yeah. that. And that even something that does seem superfluous, we can't say that in the larger scheme of things that it's actually the simplest way to do that. Right. So like like a shark seems like, man, maybe do you need uh, that extra fin or something like that? Or <laughs> or does a cow really need eight stomachs or do we really need two kidneys? Right. But what this what this point is saying is that there's we don't have the information to look at everything on such a grand scheme of things to say, no, if there if humans only had one kidney, this other larger system would break down. And this is actually the simplest way to do it. Right. Or there's a cow with one stomach that we can compare it to. Right, right, exactly. So the this whole thing, this is the point, Chuck, where I reach the, this very glaring idea that Occam's razor, or what Aristotle said, that, that, that simplicity is, is perfection, that's all man-made. That's human-made. Sure. That's a human-made concept. To value simplicity is human-made. It is possible the universe is complicated. You can come up with all sorts of examples of the universe being seemingly pretty complicated. Just the universe itself seems pretty complicated, frankly, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean that the universe tends towards simplicity. Um, It seems like humans value simplicity and the universe uses simplicity a lot, but that doesn't mean that simplicity is perfection or correctness. That's a human construct. Well, yeah, but in like, let's say in terms of engineering, it's probably a decent model to think, hey, the more complex this system is that I'm engineering, the more things there are to break. So we should probably try and make it as simple as possible that still gets the job done. But that's not to say that it can be rudimentary, like you might need it might need to be a little bit complicated to run at its most efficient, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Or art. I mean, that's a whole different can of worms. You know, that's entirely subjective. Like, is uh, you might find one drummer that says, um, less is more, you just need to provide that basic backbeat and leave room. Uh, and then you, Stuart Copeland comes in the room right. and, and laughs and punches you in the face because you look like Sting. <laughs> Thumps you in the head. <laughs> you know, so that's and that's entirely subjective when it comes to art. Like, you know, you've been to a museum and seen a a 12-inch by 12-inch square painted red. And then you've also seen Jackson Pollock or Frida Kahlo. Kahlo. Uh, <laughs> so, again, it's just subjective as to uh, simplicity. And maybe, I don't know, can you apply it to art? Am I Am I wrong there? No, not necessarily. I think that's a that's a good point because it's still it's it's subjectively valuing something, whether it's complexity or whether it's simplicity. It's it doesn't mean it's right. That's the point, right? That's I think that's your point is one's not so. right over the other. Yeah, I think that's my point. And then there's also plenty of circumstances where Occam's razor just doesn't 
help very much. Like very famously, um, Ptolemy's idea of the um, universe, the earth is the center of the universe, the mm-hmm. geocentric universe, I think is what it's called, <clears throat> where the earth is the center of the, uni- the universe, the sun, the moon, and all the planets and all the stars revolve around earth is known to be wrong now. But for a long time, that's what everyone thought until the Copernican revolution, right? where we realized that not our universe, but our solar system is sun-centered. And the sun is at the center and the earth is actually moving around it. Um, the thing is, is if you look at, if you look at the explanations between the two, they are pretty close and one's not necessarily less, um, simple than the other. And if you put them side by side, Occam's razor doesn't really help. Uh, you have to dig a little deeper and figure it out that, oh, actually, no, this one's right based on these observations. We think this one's right. But it has nothing necessarily to do with complexity. And then on the other side of the equation, just because something's complex doesn't mean that it's wrong. So the next time somebody starts flailing some Occam's razor stuff at you, you tell them, I'm going to thump you. (laughs) Do you want to be thumped? Why are you thumping everybody? Me? Yeah. Well, because they're asking for it. Is it just a uh, very mild act of violence? Yeah. Okay. It's, you yeah. don't want to be too, you don't want to punch someone in the face. No, no. And plus, I mean, like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't thump anybody anyway. I was totally kidding. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Thanks for setting me up for that one. Sure. Oh, uh, one other thing. A lot of people say that um, Occam's razor squashes free thought. So I think that does kind of tie in with your art thing. You know what I mean? Oh, Yeah. Like, feel free to go be complex. There's nothing wrong with it. Doesn't it, Like, not everything has to be funneled through this Occam's razor thing and, and made simpler just to make it better. Yeah. Well, Chuck, we made it through this one. Sort of. <laughs> it's better than jackhammers, I'll tell you that. I think you did well. I think you did as well, man. All right, thanks. That means that it was a good episode. Uh, if you want to learn more about Occam's Razor, you could read my um, so-so article on the site, uh, HowStuffWorks.com. Just type it in the search bar, and since I said so-so, it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this North Korea Part 2. We heard from a woman uh, in, Ast- in Australia. We were corrected. Mm-hmm. It just starts with an S. There is no awe. Right. A woman in Australia named Claire Sutherland, who actually had a, an interaction in a way with North Korea, when she was editor at an Australian newspaper called uh, Little M Big X. Okay. It's MX, but... It's just X. Oh, is it? No, I don't know. Okay. They, they don't say awe before Australia, so... Oh, I gotcha. Probably not the Little M. <laughs> well, she's based in Elbourne, um, <laughs> and they have editions in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. And she says, during the London Olympics in our daily metal tally graphic... We listed North and South Korea as naughty Korea and nice Korea. Uh, Just kind of a cheeky thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. She said, we've been doing this for about a week when we received a call from a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Seoul seeking comment about the fact that North Korea just issued an official condemnation of our paper and its editor. Uh, At first, our assumption was we were being punked, uh, but he directed us to the official PR website of North Korea. Sure enough, there was a flowery diatribe and the Communist English, uh, which misnamed their paper uh, Metro, by the way, mm-hmm. and called us sordid bullying and petty thieves, declaring we would be cursed long in Olympic history. 
Uh, I think my favorite extract is this, she says. Editors of the paper were so incompetent as to tarnish the reputation of the paper by themselves, by producing the article like that. There is a saying, a straw may show which way the wind blows. A single article may exhibit the level of the paper. (laughs) Wow. Came down on her. She says the uh, Wall Street Journal described the official statement as most unusual, and we ended up making some minor international headlines because of it. We ran the statement in full with a story about our sudden entry into world affairs on the front page. The headline was North Korea fires missive. Uh, At the time, we thought it was equal parts ridiculous and funny. It happened today. I'd probably try and arrange new identities for me and my staff. Uh, Anyway, thanks from me and my dog for the show. Looking forward to seeing you in Melbourne. That is from Claire Sutherland. Thanks, Claire. That was a great story. Well, you really want this one over, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) If you want to get in touch with me and Chuck with a great story, you can tweet to us. I'm at Josh M. Clark. Chuck's at Movie Crush. We're both at SYSK Podcast. Chuck's on Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And we're at Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.